The following is a message by Dr. James Renahan from Westminster Seminary, California. For more information about this message or Westminster Seminary, visit us online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. That's online at wscal.edu or call us at 760-480-8474. Let's pray. Oh Lord, would you bless us now as we hear your word. Give us ears to hear, eyes to see, hearts to understand. We ask in Christ's name. Amen. Please be seated. Turn in your Bibles to Psalm 61, if you would. Psalm 61. And hear the word of God. To the choir master with stringed instruments of David. Hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer. From the end of the earth I call to you when my heart is faint. Lead me to the rock that is higher than I, for you have been my refuge, a strong tower against the enemy. Let me dwell in your tent forever. Let me take refuge under the shelter of your wings. Selah. For you, O God, have heard my vows. You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. Proclaim the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day after day. May God's blessing be on this reading from his holy word. Psalm 61 comes in the midst of a section of psalms in which David expresses his need for help in time of trouble. Whoever it was that collected these psalms recognized a common theme here. God's people must turn to him and trust in him in the face of trouble. But perhaps even more specifically, it might be stated, God's servant must endure trouble by means of turning to and trusting in his God. Certainly this is true of David, and we may be encouraged by what he says to us here. Now this psalm includes some very interesting characteristics. You may have noticed as we read through that it only speaks of God. It doesn't speak of the Lord. And this is very unusual for David when he pens a psalm. We might ask the question, why is it that he doesn't use the covenant name of God as he expresses himself here in this place? Also, this psalm uses the language of exile in verse 2. David speaks about being far away from the land at the end of the earth. We might ask the question, why is the king in exile? Why is he speaking these things as he does? We notice that this is, uh, if I might use New Covenant language, it's a church-centered psalm. Because here David understands the importance of public worship of how it is that his soul will be strengthened and encouraged at the place of worship in Jerusalem. Fourthly, we notice the fourth characteristic here is that this is a covenantal psalm because it alludes to the Davidic covenant, pointing us to the promises that God makes to David and to his sons. And then fifthly, we notice that this psalm moves from prayer to praise. In fact, most of it is a psalm of praise, though it begins with a real sense of urgency in prayer. 
Now, as I have looked at this psalm, it seems to me that the Selah at the end of verse 4 actually divides the psalm into two halves. And I hope that we'll have the time to notice how uh, David expresses himself in the two halves of this psalm. So let's look at, at what David says before the Selah, and then notice what David says after the Selah, and consider these words. We begin at the beginning of the psalm, noticing the sense of urgency and the repetition of David's language. He uses strong terms, and he demands a hearing from God. Hear my cry, O God, listen to my prayer. Do you, do you sense the urgency in the voice of the king as he lifts up his words to the Lord his God? He says that he cries to him from the end of the earth. Now, I think that that means exile. As we've said, this is an unusual location for the king of Israel. But it probably makes reference to a time when David, David was driven from the land. And most likely, uh, that was during the rebellion of his son Absalom in 2 Samuel chapter 17. You remember, David was forced to cross the Jordan into the wilderness on the other side. And the wilderness that was on the other side might just as well have been the ends of the earth. Jerusalem was the center of the world. David was driven from that place. Wherever he was away from Jerusalem, it was like being at the ends of the earth. David expresses himself with a real depth of emotion. Notice the end of verse 2. He calls to God when his heart is faint or overwhelmed. Once again, very strong language employed by the king. And one wonders, was David overwhelmed? Was his heart faint because of the rebellion that had been brought upon him by his son. David, forced to flee from Jerusalem, forced to flee from the place of the public worship of God, humiliated by his son Absalom, deposed. His son sleeps publicly with all of David's concubines. Uh, Ahithophel, David's counselor, commits suicide. David is cursed and covered with dirt by Shimei. David is devastated, ultimately, by the death of his son Absalom. That was a powerful experience. And there was a great deal that could make his heart faint or overwhelm his soul. And so David, in the midst of this depth of trouble, cries out to the Lord his God, Lead me to the rock that is higher than I. In the depths of his difficulty, he needs to be led. You know, it's interesting to think about the language that David uses right at this place. Because it's not the language of self-extrication. But it's the language of reliance on someone else. You see, David doesn't just say, show me the way out. Tell me where to go, and I'll find my way. Give me a map. Point me to the landmarks. That's not what David says. David says, lead me. Be my guide. Walk with me. Take me by the hand, and I will follow you. You know the way, and you are able to bring me to safety. I cannot find my own way. I need you here. Lead me to this rock that is higher than I. You know that the rock is a frequent figure that is used in the Psalms. The high rock was a sturdy place of safety and a place of defense. And in the, the wilderness, there were many such places. It was something of a natural fortress, a place of shelter and protection. And without it, grave danger was always present. With it, David knew that there was peace and protection and sometimes even provision. It might be a place where you could find water. And of course, this rock in the wilderness 
is a metaphor, a picture of the fact that David needed God. He didn't just want to be led to a physical location where he could be safe. But he's expressing himself in physical terms to say, Lord, I need you. Come and lead me and help me. You see, David's past experiences with his God had made him confident of God's powerful presence with him now. Because he is able to say in verse 3, you have been my refuge, my shelter. You have been the one who has proven himself to me time after time after time. How often was it? when Saul was pursuing David as a young man, that David saw the hand of God's provision in his life. Likewise, when David uses the figure of God being a strong tower against the enemy, David could look back and based upon what he knew that the Lord had done in his own life, that the Lord was able to help him. Even when David's trouble came from his own sin, he knew that God was the one who would be able to, to help him. Because his God was full of mercy and kindness to David and always would be. He never leaves his people, even when their heart is faint, even when they are overwhelmed. Now, you know, verses 3 and 4 seem to follow an ABBA pattern. Take a look at, at what you have there. In verse 3, the first line, the A, we have the word refuge. Line B, we have the word tower. In verse 4, the first line, the B prime, tabernacle or tent, and then uh, the, the A prime in the second line of verse 4, shelter and refuge. Refuge, tower, tent, shelter or refuge. Now there is a slight difference between the B and the B prime because the tower of verse 3 becomes the tent or the tabernacle of verse 4. But the change in symbol is very appropriate here. Up through verse 3, we have encountered wilderness imagery. And that wilderness imagery is carried over into verse 3. But verse 4 begins to turn us away from the, image, uh, the wilderness to the dwelling place of God, to the tabernacle or the tent which was in Jerusalem. Not the desert where David was alone, but the place where God dwells in Israel. Look at verse 4. The language of the tent clearly points to the tent of meeting. It's, it's, there's no doubt that that's what David has in mind here. When he speaks in the second part of verse 4, calling upon God to bring him under the shelter of his wings, he's pointing to the mercy seat in the tabernacle, covered by the wings of the seraphim, the place where God dwells. You see, David here expresses his faith. Though he's in exile, he looks back to Jerusalem. He knows that God dwells in Israel in the tabernacle. And he is able to trust in his God as a result. And then David says... Selah. Stop. Meditate. Contemplate. Think about this. You see, in the first part of the psalm, David exemplifies to us the nature of true faith. True faith and how it acts when it's overwhelmed, when it's exiled, when it's troubled. You know what true faith does? True faith finds its courage in the place where God meets with his people. For David, this was the tabernacle for us, of course, it is the church. The place of greatest strength, 
The place of greatest blessing is the place where God meets with his people. David understood this point, and he gave it its greatest valuation. He looked back to Jerusalem, and notice, not to his palace, not to his throne, not to his home. That's not what his longing was for. His longing was first and foremost for his God and for the worship of his God. Dear friends, so must also that be the case with us. Selah, pause and meditate. Think upon the great blessing that God gives to us when we meet with him. What about the second half of the psalm, after the Selah? Having expressed these things, now David continues, and the structure of these verses is very interesting. We have another A-B-B-A pattern here, but it's a little bit more extensive. Notice in verse 5, For you, have heard, for you, O God, have heard my vows. Notice the last line of the psalm, as I perform my vows day after day. There's the A and the A prime. The B, the second line of verse 5, You have given me the heritage of those who fear your name. The first line of verse 8, the B prime, so will I ever sing praises to your name. We have vows and name and name and vows. And of course, this points us to verses 6 and 7, which really are at the center of the second stanza of the psalm. Now think about what David says here. Vows, of course, are strictly religious. These are the commitments that David made to his God. In 5a, they were made to God. In 8b, they require daily performance. God hears the vows of David. David performs them. And you know that the failure to perform a vow was a gross sin. Vows were words that were spoken not to be taken lightly because vows were words, they were promises, they were commitments that were made to God. Now, what were these vows? Well, maybe verse 8 gives us a clue to the vows that David made. So I will ever sing praises to your name. Verse 8a and verse 8b go closely together. So will I ever sing praises to your name as I perform my vows day by day. It may be that David's vows were his commitment to worship and serve his God, to walk daily as a believing man ought to walk with the praise of God being sung from his lips. But David also speaks about the name of God. The name of God, David tells us, is the heritage of those who fear him. Now, you know, it's interesting, as I pointed out earlier, that the covenant name of God is missing from this psalm. He's always simply God. Why is it? Well, it's because it's not really absent, though the word is not here. The concept is clearly present in the psalm. Everyone who read this psalm would have understood the reference that David makes at this point. I will sing praises to your name. What is the name of God? It's Yahweh. It's his covenant commitment. And I will keep my vows to you always. But what about verses 6 and 7? That's God's work. Notice 
David cries out to the Lord. Prolong the life of the king. May his years endure to all generations. May he be enthroned forever before God. Appoint steadfast love and faithfulness to watch over him. Here we have three phases which speak of the exceeding length of the king's reign. Prolong his life. Make it longer than normal. Prolong it through many generations. But you know, a king, a man, only lives through one generation. And then let him abide forever before God. Forever. Let the king abide forever before God. We, we again here have a hint of the, the tabernacle. May he be enthroned forever before God. In his steadfast love and his faithfulness, his mercy and his truth, which will preserve the king. Now, if we look back to 2 Samuel, we would notice that this episode with Absalom happens later in David's life. In not a few years, David died. We need to ask the question, did God's promises fail when David died? Well, it would be blasphemous to say that, wouldn't they? But David himself knew that the covenant, this is the reference to the Davidic covenant, David knew that the covenant was not for him alone, but that rather one day his greater son, not Absalom, would sit on his throne and reign in fulfillment of these words. And that the one who would come would abide forever, would be enthroned forever, would serve in God's presence eternally. David was only a picture. David was a living portrait of the greater one who was to come and who now has come, even our Lord Jesus Christ. David's exile made him long for God's presence in the tabernacle in Jerusalem. And his return in safety gave him confidence to cry out to God and to speak of God's great covenant purposes, promises that are accomplished for us in his son. Now there's a couple of things that we can say about this psalm. First, it reminds us of the central place of the worship of God. David, drawn away from the worship of God, cries out and longs to be returned to God's people and to be able to sing with them, to mingle his voice with theirs in the praise of the great God that he serves. This psalm reminds us, of course, of the promise that God makes to help us when we are in times of trouble, wherever we are, that he is with us and will hear us and will aid us in the midst of our struggles. But also this psalm points us wonderfully to the fulfilled promises that God gives to us in his son, Jesus Christ. It calls us to remember that David is simply a picture. But God has given to us one who has ascended to his right hand and who sits there now in David's seats to rule and to reign. You see, as Christians, it calls us to rejoice in the doctrine of God who reveals himself in Christ and who now rules and reigns for the glory of God and for the good of his church. We may endure even in the face of exile because of what God has done for us in Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Amen. 
Copyright 2014, Westminster Seminary, California. All rights reserved. You are permitted to reproduce and distribute this material in any format, provided that you do not alter the wording in any way and that you do not charge a fee beyond the cost of reproduction. For web posting, a link to this document on our website is preferred.